Today in Business from Wired. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today in Business from Wired. Weighing Big Tech's promise to Black America. Last year, Netflix made a pledge that represents the tech industry's best shot at redressing the nation's racial inequality, How Seriously Should We Take It? by Victor Luckerson In the spring of 2020, folks in New Orleans' Lower Ninth Ward started flocking to the Sankofa Food Pantry on Dauphin Street, however they could, by car, on bicycles, rolling push carts on foot. The lines were brisk, but constant as the cascading effects of the coronavirus pandemic swept through the neighborhood of pastel-colored houses. Some people had lost jobs. Others were caring for loved ones sick with the virus or picking up food for people under quarantine. For Rashida Ferdinand, the director of the nonprofit that operates the pantry, the crush of demand posed a series of dilemmas, beginning with the fact that she could no longer allow people inside the building. But one thing was sure. Shutting down the pantry was out of the question. No matter what, Ferdinand says, we knew we needed to stay open. After circulating undetected through the city during much of Mardi Gras, The coronavirus had overwhelmed New Orleans with unprecedented speed, and it was killing more people per capita there than nearly anywhere else in the United States. Under lockdown, around 100,000 people in the Crescent City had been thrown out of work as businesses were forced to shutter and tourism ground to a halt. In the Lower Ninth Ward, where a third of residents work in either food service, lodging, or retail, and where household incomes are half the parish average, The need for aid was especially acute. In so-called good times, about 350 people relied on Sankofa's services. Now Ferdinand's organization was furnishing more than 800 people a month with milk, eggs, canned beans, and other staples. To meet the needs, Sankofa stretched itself. The pantry went from being open two days a week to four. It began delivering food to people who could not collect it in person. When some of Ferdinand's employees started working from home for fear of contracting the virus, she started handing out food herself. With sheets of plexiglass purchased from Ace Hardware, she improvised a COVID-safe storefront on Sankofa's patio deck. 
Inside, nearly a dozen red and black metal shelves took over most of the headquarters' open floor plan. Our whole front office became the pantry, she said. But then the next dilemma reared up. Sankofa was running out of money. The nonprofit employed about a dozen people and was racking up expenses faster than usual, while sources of grant funding were drying up in the financial uncertainty of the pandemic. Relief seemed to be on the way from the federal government. In late March, Congress authorized $349 billion in forgivable loans to help small businesses and nonprofits maintain their payroll amid the shutdown. To access the funds, business owners had to go through financial institutions. So Ferdinand immediately called Capital One, where Sankofa had banked for 10 years and maintained a typical account balance of around $300,000. But a representative told her the bank could not process her loan application. I don't know what was going on with Capital One, but we were disregarded, Ferdinand says. There wasn't a person set up to actually move this needle forward and work with small business owners. So Ferdinand began researching other lenders that might be able to help her. She ultimately turned to Hope Credit Union, a black-operated financial institution based in Jackson, Mississippi, which took on her loan application right away. Now, in its 26th year of operation, Hope's mission is to serve low-income communities and people of color left behind by the traditional banking system. The organization has weathered disasters in the Deep South before, from Hurricane Katrina to the Great Recession. In fact, Hope tends to gain customers during such events, which lay bare the ways in which the U.S. economy devalues black life and black ambition. I think crises have catapulted our growth, says Bill Bynum, Hope's CEO. Unfortunately, very few organizations are providing financial services to those who have the greatest need. As the pandemic continued to unfold, Hope also got an infusion of capital from an unlikely source, Silicon Valley. In July 2020, following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, Netflix announced that it would place a $10 million deposit at Hope, the largest sum the credit union had ever received from a single customer. Floyd's killing sparked widespread protests in the streets and calls for racial justice in Fortune 500 boardrooms. But while corporate America's official responses often felt like crisis PR disguised as philanthropy, Netflix's approach stood out. The company's deposit at Hope was just one small part of a plan drawn up by a mid-level HR executive who had been researching black-operated banks in his spare time. Following his advice, the company pledged to invest 2% of its cash holdings in financial institutions and organizations that directly support black communities, a proportion of the company's wealth that, at the time of the announcement, amounted to about $100 million. As Netflix's fortunes rose, the theory went, so too would those black businesses and nonprofits like Ferdinand's. Netflix's announcement also included a call to action. The streaming giant challenged other firms to follow its lead and dedicate some share of their cash to black economic initiatives. This is not charity, says Aaron Mitchell, the human resources director at Netflix who spent months devising the black bank's proposal. This is not one time. Whether Netflix's move is sufficient is a different kind of question. This summer, a handful of tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, and Tesla, reached a collective valuation of $9.6 trillion, about a quarter of the entire S&P 500. Meanwhile, black communities have weathered decades of disinvestment, struggling in a segregated economy that has persisted long since the eradication of Jim Crow, 
and the nation's wealth is more unevenly distributed today than at any time since before the Great Depression. Hope, with Netflix's help, aims to reverse that flow of inequality. We're looking to basically import deposits, import capital into these wealth-starved communities, Bynum says. But will Netflix keep faith with those communities? Black banks have been held up as the secret to racial uplift since the end of the Civil War. In 1865, the Freedmen's Savings Bank was chartered by Congress for the benefit of newly emancipated slaves and was described by Frederick Douglass as his people's road to a share of the wealth and well-being of the world. Decades later, in the most successful black American enclaves of the early 20th century, institutions like the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank in Richmond, Virginia, and the Mechanics and Farmers Bank in Durham, North Carolina, helped black people purchase homes and finance new businesses. For generations, black leaders across the ideological spectrum, from Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, have encouraged their people to seize their own financial destiny by controlling banks. And in any case, white-owned banks rarely lent to black people before the civil rights era. There are many reasons that people have been drawn to black-owned banks, says Marissa Baradaran, a law professor at UC Irvine and the author of The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap, Solidarity and Necessity, most especially. But these institutions have long teetered, along with their clientele, on a knife's edge of financial precarity. For a hundred years after slavery, black people were systematically excluded from well-paying blue-collar and white-collar jobs, and today they still face higher unemployment rates than white people. The practice of redlining, a state-sanctioned policy of labeling black neighborhoods as financially hazardous for investment, denied many people access to homeownership which is historically the easiest route to intergenerational wealth and financial stability. Redlining was outlawed in 1968, but today mortgage approval algorithms continue to favor white homebuyers over their black counterparts. Business loans and venture capital, too, still accrue to white entrepreneurs far more than to entrepreneurs of color. These factors have contributed to a huge and persistent racial wealth gap. While the median white family's net worth is $171,000, the median black families is $17,000. And that gap makes it nearly impossible for black-owned financial institutions to generate much wealth without more integration into the broader financial system. In order to function efficiently, banks and credit unions need collective buy-in both from people who make deposits and people who take out loans. The money you keep in your savings account may get loaned out to an entrepreneur. The business they build may, in turn, provide jobs in your community, giving workers more money to spend and save. And some of those earnings may wend their way back to the original bank in the form of more deposits. This dynamic is called the money multiplier effect, and it undergirds America's economic prosperity. But that virtuous cycle falls apart in communities that lack capital. Banks aren't magic, Baradaran says. If there isn't wealth in the black community, they can't create it out of nothing. At the same time, in the broader ambit of the financial system, black banks have consistently been denied advantages heaped upon white-controlled institutions. In the early 20th century, a son of European immigrants, Amadeo P. Giannini, watched his Bank of Italy gain mainstream acceptance and evolve into Bank of America while black Chicago banker Jesse Binga saw his Binga State Bank denied aid for a banking association it belonged to on the onset of the Great Depression leading to his financial collapse. 
Nearly 100 years later, during the 2008 financial crisis, major national banks were deemed too big to fail and received cash infusions from the Treasury Department. Smaller black banks in Chicago, Milwaukee, and New Orleans were eventually forced to shut their doors. Despite all these clear disadvantages, black leaders and white officials alike have nonetheless expected black banks and their clients to create a self-sustaining economic engine, a perpetual motion machine of noble self-reliance. The black community has to build from within, Richard Nixon admonished in a 1968 campaign ad. If only they could effectively pool their resources, the rhetoric went, black people would lift themselves out of poverty and into the compounding benefits of intergenerational wealth. Hope was born in the mid-1990s when the members of Anderson United Methodist Church, where Bynum was a worshiper, decided to pool their resources and open a credit union. The church sat in a low-income neighborhood surrounded by payday lenders and check cashers, the kinds of financial institutions common in areas where national banks avoid opening branches. At the time, Bynum was CEO of a Community Development Financial Institution, or CDFI, called the Enterprise Corporation of the Delta, a type of organization designed to take in public and private dollars to fund projects in low-income communities. When the church's pastor expressed interest in opening a credit union that members of the congregation would own together, Bynum provided the financial expertise necessary to get the organization off the ground. We did it with volunteers, recalls Bynum, whose thick, quizzical eyebrows always seemed to be searching for the solution to a problem. It was in the same room that the tithes and offerings are counted. From early on, Hope set out to avoid the trap of self-help by your bootstraps thinking, and went looking for ways to leverage resources outside its community. By 2002, the credit union had moved its operations from the church to a standalone branch in a Jackson shopping mall. That same year, Hope joined forces with Bynum's CDFI in order to expand the resources available to both firms, and Bynum was named CEO of the joint organization. Hope soon added a policy arm, now called the Hope Policy Institute, which aimed to influence state and federal legislation concerning financial support for low-income families. Hope Credit Union opened its first branch outside of Mississippi in New Orleans in late 2004, in the historically black enclave of Central City. Months later, Hurricane Katrina roared through, flooding more than 110,000 homes and 20,000 businesses, predominantly in black neighborhoods. Bynum immediately turned his organization's attention to the crisis. The credit union helped nearly 3,500 New Orleans residents open deposit accounts so they could access FEMA payments and other emergency funds. The Community Development Financial Institution raised millions of dollars for a hurricane relief fund, then put the money to work rebuilding homes and businesses, and the Policy Center pushed for state legislation that would ensure federal hurricane relief went to the people who needed it most. Hope's performance during Katrina sparked an extended period of growth. By 2018, the credit union was operating in five states, including Alabama, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Membership grew from 4,000 in 2005 to more than 35,000 by the end of 2019. Deposits over the same period grew from nearly $29 million to $236 million. But the profile of its clientele remained largely the same. 77% of the credit union's members are black, and their average credit score is 87 points below the national average. When the wind blows, Bynum says of the typical HOPE member, they get blown the farthest. So Bynum kept trying to find new ways to bring the credit union ballast. 
in the form of large deposits from wealthier players in the economy. After Hurricane Katrina, Rashida Ferdinand was among the tens of thousands of New Orleans residents whose neighborhoods were submerged in several feet of water. Sankofa, her nonprofit, grew out of a long shared struggle to rebuild the Lower Ninth Ward, where Ferdinand still lives. The 13-year-old organization began as an effort to establish a monthly open-air market that brought fresh food, crafts, and life to the ravaged neighborhood. A sculptor by trade, Ferdinand says she built Sankofa almost as if she were setting up a work of public art. You're building spaces for people to commune and have laughter and love, she says, the same spirit that you might bring to an installation. Over the years, Sankofa added the food pantry, a community garden, and a wetlands park with a nature trail. It grew up on partnerships with foundations, public agencies, and national banks, only to see some of that support evaporate when the next major disaster arrived. Ferdinand's experience of being left behind by a major financial institution during the pandemic was far from unique. After Congress authorized the Paycheck Protection Program, national banks such as Bank of America and Chase refused to process applications for new clients, and even their existing small customers were left fighting for scraps, while larger companies received priority treatment. An unseemly share of the initial PPP money went to publicly traded firms. And according to an analysis by Bloomberg, Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.